Welcome to A History of the Inca. Episode 40, Kipus. Hello everyone and welcome once again to A History of the Inca. I am your host, Nick Mashinsky. Just a reminder, if you are able, to support the show on Patreon. For just $1, you can get a shout-out on the show. For $2, you can get your name on the website. Or perhaps you want to show your support for the show, in which case the $7, $12, or $18 tiers may interest you. Where you can get our logo on a sticker, a mug, or even a poster of Machu Picchu. If any of that interests you, or you just want to show your love of the show, head over to Patreon.com and search for A History of the Inca. Today, we will attempt to tackle one of the most fascinating objects that come out of the Andes, the quipu. It is possible that such objects hold the very secrets or even history of certain moments in time. A word of warning, this is possibly the most abstract thing we are going to discuss on the show. Attempting to explain what a quipo is and its, well, makeup will be a bit difficult, but I'm going to give it a try. Enjoy. The Inca and the societies that have come before them are said to not have had a writing system. And in a way, that is correct. There was not a writing system that existed in the Andes, but there were quipus. Quipus are recording devices that were used throughout the Andes. And as you might have guessed, they were used well before the Inca came onto the scene. While alphabetic writing is meant to tell a narrative or a story, Kipus were meant to tell the narrative of structures. What does that mean? They hold the secrets of state business, tribute records, and census taking. Think of it as an institution's financial books, perhaps. Those books can be read to see if that institution had a good year or a bad year, where its income came from, and where expenses took place basically the health of that institution. Kipus were similar. Think of them as a form of accounting, and from those records we can determine what was taking place within a certain institution, whether that is a huaca or an empire. The Spanish, though, didn't find the Kipus as a recognizable writing or accounting system. Gary Urton likens the situation to how Andeans and Europeans worked metals. One worked metals to bring out the color and the beauty of it, the other for war. The Spanish had only a vague idea of what information these devices contained, and since they were there to colonize, not to learn and preserve cultural heritage, many were destroyed. Thanks to the dryness of the Peruvian coastline, and in other cases, good fortune, 923 quipus have been uncovered and are preserved in museums around the world, many in Berlin, Germany. However, only 544, or 58%, 
have actually been studied. Considering there were likely tens of thousands of such devices over the history of the Andes, if not more, archaeologists and researchers have only been able to examine a small fraction. I have not been fortunate enough to see one in person. None reside in a museum in Cusco at the time of this recording, though 11 appear to be within a private collection of a resident of the city. However, I've seen plenty of pictures and diagrams to be able to recognize one and describe the varying components of a quipu. So here we go. Imagine you are sitting at a table and before you is a string lying east to west. And I will be using cardinal directions for this. So quickly, north will be away from you, east to your right, south towards your body, and west to your left. So again, you have a piece of string lying east and west. This string is called your primary cord. Now hanging off your primary cord, or positioned south for this example, are your pendant cords. A cord hanging off the primary cord with its end unattached is a pendant cord. And a pendant cord could be in any position on the primary cord depending upon what was being recorded. Now off these pendant cords, subsidiary cords can be attached. You could have as many subsidiary cords attached to a pendant cord as you would like, and in any position on that pendant cord. Again, depending upon what you were actually recording. You could even attach a subsidiary cord to another subsidiary cord and keep attaching cords that way if you wished. And it may mean different things if a subsidiary cord is attached to the east or west side of its parent cord. We don't really know. Now let's talk about a loop pendant. Take one of your pendant cords and attach its end to the primary cord you now have made a loop pendant. From this loop pendant, you can attach even more pendant cords, sort of creating a side story or account. The primary cord may be knotted at your west end and left to dangle on the east end, or vice versa. Moreover, you may have a cord pointing north from the primary cord called the top cord. Or in rare cases, rare because we don't have many examples of them, there could be a carved wooden bar, possibly with a design that the primary cord would attach to. Some bars have been discovered to have monkeys, seabirds, or men drinking from Kiros. Oh, and silly me, I forgot about the knots. All of those pendant and subsidiary cords that I just mentioned well, they would be tied in various knots, where the loops and type of knot meant different things, and the different positions on the cord had different meanings. And we can't forget about the color, oh no. Even the color of the cord mattered. A particular color had a particular meaning for that particular kipu. Take that all in. We have pendant cords hanging off the primary cord, 
each possibly containing multiple subsidiary chords, and both pendant and subsidiary chords with varying knots in varying positions in varying colors. All of these things combine to mean that there are an unfathomable amount of combinations. How was it possible for these devices to be used? But they were used for centuries and by groups of indigenous people who were painted for a long time as nothing but savages. They weren't read or used by everyone, so don't feel bad that your imaginary kipu we just went through is a heaping mess and you've thrown it in the trash. Instead, kipus were made, maintained, and read by a specific group of people, the kipu kamayaks, or kipu keepers. The kipu kamayaks are hardly mentioned by the Spanish, as the latter focused more on soldiers and details of the army in their accounts, not necessarily the state in its administration. However, the kipu kamayaks were integrated into every facet of the government, and thus influenced various aspects of the empire to shape the Andean world. If researchers are able to unlock the information within the kipus, then we will know a great deal more about the Andes. And researchers have been somewhat successful, as we'll see shortly. But we still don't know everything there is to know. And there are some reasons why. The first reason is the disinterest from the Spanish in learning what the kipus were and how to use them exactly. The second was likely also a cause of disinterest, but also reservation from the Kipu Kamayaks. They likely refrained from sharing many details of the Kipu with the colonizers. Thus, because of the hesitance or disinterest of these two groups, our ability to fully understand the Kipus has been hindered. But, as I said, scholars have learned enough for us to follow several examples of how kipus were used. And arguably nobody has studied kipus for longer and more in depth than Gary Urton. His book, Inca History and Knots, reading kipus as primary sources, currently provides the most up-to-date information regarding our understanding of kipus. The following examples come from his book, and if there is a theme behind understanding a kipu, it is this. It all depends on the context. Our first example takes us to the Museum für Volkerkund, Munich, which houses UR28, a kipu from the Nazca area. UR28 is one of six kipus in a linked set. And yes, you can link primary chords together. I forgot to mention that earlier. And it was recovered from grave robbers. This kipu has 74 pendant chords. 15 of these have one subsidiary chord. The chords are mainly light brown or medium brown, and even a few dark browns. The 74 pendant chords are split into three groups based on their spacing on the primary chord. Pendant chord 1 is one group, 
with all the knots adding up to 102. Pennant chords 2 through 4 make up another group with a total of 102 knots. And chords 5 through 74 make up the third group and have a total of 104 knots. So what does this all represent? Let's start with the groupings. All three groupings are meant to represent a single object or objects being counted. Group 1, where there is a single pendant chord, is the summary. Group 2, pendant chords 2 through 4, provide a bit more detail. And group 3, pendant chords 5 through 74, provide the most detail. Zooming into group 2, each pendant chord, which are all light brown by the way, has a subsidiary chord, all of which are medium brown. It is believed that each pendant chord and subsidiary chord represented an AU, and the two colors, light brown or medium brown, each represent a moiety. Meanwhile, the knots themselves, adding up to 102 and 104 respectively, are believed to be the total heads of household that were counted. Why is it believed that it was people being counted in this case? Well, because we know units of tens, one hundreds, and thousands were often used for the grouping of people. A group of 100, known as a pachaca, is an amount that would have not been uncommon. So essentially, we have a census of an Inca-era village in Nazca. And we know this quipu was from a village during the Inca Empire because of the radiocarbon dating that took place. Let's go to Inca Huasi for another example. Inca Huasi is a large site and was used as a base to set out in the conquest of the southern coast, according to Cieza de Leon. It was modeled after Cusco, but we are most interested in the colcas of this site. The colcas, or storehouses, were laid out in a grid pattern, and within some of these colcas, excavations have revealed the goods that were stored in individual rooms. Some of these were food products, and it is under these goods that quipus have been uncovered. It is inferred that the quipus that were buried there record the numbers of what was housed within each colca. They were in inventory, so officials would know exactly how much of a good was housed there. We now go to the Lurin Valley, to the Oracle of Pachacamac. 91, or about 10% of all quipus that have been found thus far, come from the area of Pachacamac. However, just because these quipus were found at this sacred site does not mean that these quipus originated from there. Indeed, there is a high variability within the quipus that have been uncovered at Pachacamac. From the color to the grouping of the pendant cords to various other features found on a quipu. The difference in quipu standards can be compared to the variety of dialects within a single language, making the task of reading a quipu 
all the more difficult. This variability is likely tied to the fact that Pachacamac was a great pilgrimage site. For centuries, well before the Inca, people had come to the oracle bringing sacrifices. Some quipus were therefore used by those coming in, tallies of what goods they carried with them to sacrifice. Others were likely from the area, keeping record of what was brought in. Many quipus have a mean value of just under 1,500. However, a few quipus have counts of several thousand, with the highest tally being over 200,000. Now, what goods many of these quipus kept track of is uncertain, and as far as where some of these quipus originally came from is an even greater mystery at the moment. However, context is everything in archaeology, and some quipus were found with spondylus shell, signaling that some quipus possibly traveled as far away as the coast of Ecuador. Given the fact that the site of Pachacamac had likely hundreds of quipus related to it, we can imagine that other religious sites and complexes had quipus associated with them. Take the Cusco Seki system, for example. Currently, no quipu has been identified that is related to this Seki system. But we do know that quipus were indeed made and used based on colonial accounts. And since we know that the Cusco Seki system was not the only Seki system in the Andes, we can only guess that quipus were used at other sites as well. Much like Pachacamac, there is likely more than a single quipu for a given Seki system. Erton believes that there were likely two quipus used, one associated with Hanan, or the upper Moedi, and the other Hurin, or the lower Moedi. Given what we know about duality and the fact that Huacas within the Cusco Seki system were attended by Panacas and Ayus, Erton's thinking certainly carries merit. East of Cajamarca, where the Andes become the Amazon, is the home of the Chachapoyas. Like many groups in and around the Andes, the Chachapoyas mummified their ancestors once they passed. These mummies were stored in cholpas, but located on cliff sides. At the site of Laguna de los Candores, several of these cholpas were discovered after a crew rappelled down. And within, several of the mummies possessed quipus. The placement of these quipus with these mummies suggests that these mummies were actually keepers of these quipus. Remember, in Andean ideology, deceased ancestors were not really gone, but still spiritually alive and could communicate through intermediaries. Certain quipus may hold the tales of life and death of certain individuals, or the origin of certain Ayus themselves. With this in mind, it is not so unusual that these mummies or ancestors were entrusted with quipus.
One of the kipus identified as UR6 has been determined through the interpretation of loop pendants and pendant cords as a bi-calendar, a calendar tracking two consecutive years. This may have something to do with the duality of Andean society. However, it is proposed that the calendar is actually tracking Mita labor. The first year tracked within the kipu counts to 2,000, while the second year records nearly 1,000. What is being counted is the headcount of laborers for that given year. Both 2,000 and 1,000 are nice numbers that fit within the counting system of the Andes, and it is proposed that the second year the task did not necessarily require 2,000 laborers, like the previous year. Hence the difference in the count from one year to the next. Now it turns out that a couple other kipus also found there, UR9 and UR21, have similar numbers to UR6, and in some cases the exact same numbers. Therefore, it is believed that the total accounts recorded in UR9 and UR21 were kept by two other Kipu Kamayoks and then reported to a third and higher Kipu Keeper who kept UR6. Heading to the Limo Valley, we come to the site of Puruchuco, near present-day Lima and the Oracle of Pachacamac. Here we have yet another Kipu archive that was uncovered with a single mummy bundle. Several of these Kipus share the same count with a single Kipu also contained within that archive. What we have in this example are three levels of administrative record keeping. The first level is the local or village count or census. The second kipu is at a second or higher administrative level. The third is the administrative level for the area and is the kipu that contains data from other kipus which were not recovered with the archive. Such a hierarchy within the kipu recording system allowed records to be consulted by those locally as well as those at higher levels of the administration. Another interesting interpretation from this archive is a repetitive pattern. Going from west to east on several kipus from this archive, there are 12 cords, with only three of these cords containing knots, all of which are figure eight knots. There are only three of these knots, and they are located on the first, seventh, and ninth cords of those 12 cords. It is argued that this combination of 12 chords, three of which, the first, seventh, and ninth, all contain a single knot, is a kind of emblem or place identifier, possibly signaling Peru Chuco, alerting those who read kipus that this particular kipu was associated with that site. Perhaps other kipus with this emblem will be recovered in the years to come around the area of Peruchuco, or even more interestingly, beyond it. Urton is keen to point out that 
at the time when these quipus were used, they were far from static artifacts we currently view them as. Quipus were constantly consulted and moved about, tracking goods and even people as they moved about the Andes through time and space. To quote Urton, These quipus may have been viewed as historical documents detailing actions that transpired at some moment in time at this particular place within the grand complex network of inhabited sites within Tawatensuyu. Making breaking the code of the quipu all the more important. But will we ever be able to do that? Does an equivalent of the Rosetta Stone exist in quipu form? Maybe. In the Santa Valley on the coast of Peru in 1670, a revista, or census, was taken of the local population to reassess tribute payments. Notice the date, 1670, Colonial Peru. Many, many years later, Carlos Radicati published several works on an archive of six quipus. Based on the works of Radicati, who died in 1990, in Gary Urton's examination of this archive, the latter believes that this archive of quipus is a direct translation of the revista documented in 1670. The tallies from the quipus match the tribute amount in the document. The colonial document also has very specific details that may be used to read via the quipu. Now, for simplicity's sake, I am refraining from going into too much detail with this example. In order to understand the case made by Urton, you should really read the entire chapter he dedicates to it. It is likely that this example does not provide a straightforward decipherment, though. Interpreting the signs and patterns within quipus will have to be done slowly over time. Indeed, Urton believes that if we are able to decipher quipus, many gaps in the history of the Inca and Andes in general will be filled. Not necessarily in the narrative sense, but in the sense of the environment. Were the storehouses full in certain periods? Where was tribute going? What kinds of tribute was flowing where? What huacas were holding sway in the area? Questions such as these, and many more, could be answered, giving us a more holistic picture of the Andes and the Inca Empire. <laughs>